In Genesis chapter 41 is where we are this morning. Genesis chapter 41, continuing to work our way through this first book of the Bible. And of course, we're at the latter end and we're considering in particular the life of Joseph. Genesis chapter 41, and let's begin reading in verse 1. It says, And it came to pass at the end of two full years <clears throat> that Pharaoh dreamed. Behold, he stood by the river, and behold, there came up out of the river seven well-favored kind and fat-fleshed, and they fed in a meadow. And behold, seven other kind came up after them out of the river, ill-favored and lean-fleshed, and stood by the other kind upon the brink of the river. And the ill-favored and lean-fleshed kind did eat up the seven well-favored and fat kind. So Pharaoh awoke. And he slept and dreamed the second time, and behold, seven ears of corn came up upon one stalk, rank and good. And behold, seven thin ears, and blasted with the east wind, sprung up after them. And the seven thin ears devoured the seven rank and full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men thereof. And Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none that could interpret them unto Pharaoh. Then spake the chief butler unto Pharaoh, saying, I do remember my faults this day. Pharaoh was wroth with his servants and put me in ward and the captain of the guard's house, both me and the chief baker. And we dreamed a dream in one night, I and he. We dreamed each man according to the interpretation of his dream. And there was there with us a young man, an Hebrew, servant to the captain of the guard. And we told him, and he interpreted to us our dreams. To each man according to his dream he did interpret. And it came to pass as he interpreted to us, so it was. Me he restored unto mine office, and him he hanged. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. We come now to that point in the story of Joseph where Joseph is released from prison and he is elevated to become prime minister of Egypt. It's quite a remarkable advancement by anybody's standards. But let's we think to ourselves as we read this chapter, what a stroke of luck. You know, what, what a great break for Joseph this was. Let's think again, because the psalmist reminds us that promotion comes neither from the east nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. This is no lucky break. God has been preparing Joseph for this moment, and although he's only 30 years of age or thereabouts, he's more than ready to do that God, the job that God has purposed for him. Now in our country, it's considered to be a remarkable thing for anyone to make it into number 10 who hasn't gone through third level education. You peruse the history of men who have occupied that place and, and the post of prime minister and you'll find that many of them were schooled at Eton and many of them attended Cambridge or Oxford. Our present prime minister, Rishi Sunak, is a graduate of the prestigious Stanford University in the United States. 
But God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. And so when God chose a prime minister for Egypt, he didn't send him to Cambridge. He sent him to Coventry. Joseph was isolated from his homeland, from his family, from familiar friends and neighbors. He was separated so that he would be prepared when the hand of God moved upon him and freed him from prison and promoted him to the highest governmental post in the land. In verses 1 to 13 there we read of Joseph's pardon. It's been two full years since Joseph harbored any hope of freedom. And it seemed like an eternity to him since he last waved goodbye to the chief butler and expected that he would soon be freed. But as the closing words of chapter 40 reminds us, the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And you can imagine Joseph now, when he has this revelation concerning the chief butler's dream, and sharing that revelation with him, and then asking that the chief butler represent him before the Pharaoh. You can imagine Joseph begins to count the the hours that he now has left. He, He thinks there's three days, and the butler's going back to his job. He's going back to have the ear of Pharaoh. Three days, and there'll be a petition made on his behalf. Three days, and he's likely to have a hearing, and maybe get a release. And you can imagine him counting down the hours, 72 hours and his nightmare after 10 years would be over. But the butler was gone and the 74th hour passed away and the 75th and the 76th and soon the hours turned to days and the days turned to months and the months turned to years. And all the while Joseph is waiting and waiting and waiting in that dungeon, daily going on with the mundane tasks that Potiphar sets for him. And it must have looked to him as though he would never ever be released. But that was to reckon without God. You know, on a human level, you've got to question how it was that the chief butler forgot Joseph. I mean, you'd have thought he'd have been his best friend just about. But maybe he just got caught up in the daily grind of life. Maybe he was so thrilled to have his life spared and his job handed back to him that Joseph just slipped out of his mind. Sometimes that happens with people. We owe them something and all thought of them slips our mind. Or maybe he thought that any mention of his prison experience might excite in Pharaoh some negative feelings toward him and, and it might not end well and so it was a delicate subject and he was looking for the time to bring it up into Pharaoh's, uh, into Pharaoh's ear hearing uh, but he was just loath and reluctant to do that. We don't know that but what we do know that when you consider this matter from the divine perspective it was God who caused the chief butler to forget. You see if you think about this Had Joseph been released three days after he revealed the vision or the dream of the butler, what would have happened? If Pharaoh had brought him into his court and said, listen, let me hear your story. And he said, I was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And the Pharaoh agreed. And he said, oh, we've made a terrible mistake here. There's been a miscarriage of justice. Off you go. What would Joseph have done? He likely would have made his way back to his family. 
He would have gone all the way back to Canaan, back to his father's house, back to his friends, back to his family, back to familiar surroundings. And then what? Here's what. Two years later, famine would have struck the land. The embryonic Israelite nation with its messianic line would have been threatened with extinction. So God didn't want Joseph at home at this point. God wanted Joseph in Egypt. He wanted him to wait and wait a full two years until at last he would permit him to go. And when God let him go, he put his life on course to save his family and preserve a nation. God's timing, friends, is always perfect. Don't let that slip. Now, Joseph's release came about because Pharaoh had a dream. He had two dreams. We just read those dreams in the first dream. He sees some fattened calves, some fat cows, and they're uh, happily, uh, happily eating on the land. They're doing well. And out of the river comes these skinny cows, and the skinny cows eat up the fat cows. And basically you have the same dream uh, that follows it. Instead of it being one of livestock, it's, it's one concerning, uh, concerning grain. And uh, the, the rise of, uh, of these, uh, these good and full ears of grain that are eaten up by grain that are windblown and are, are useless. And such was the impact of those dreams that, you know, Pharaoh must have, uh, must have woke up with a sweat and, and wondered at their meaning. You see, these dreams were peculiarly Egyptian in character. The presence of cows in Pharaoh's dream would have impressed upon him that the visions he had was something of a religious uh, experience. It was a religious significance to them. You see, Isis... The revered goddess of fertility in ancient Egypt was symbolized by a cow. As was Osiris, the god of vegetation and the spirit world. Uh, He was predicted by a bull accompanied by seven uh, cows. In the next book of your Bible, you'll come into the book of Exodus and you'll meet Moses. And of course, in the course of telling Moses' story, you hear how he is lifted out of the Nile as a baby and how he is adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter. That Pharaoh's daughter was Hatshepsut. And uh, when Hazel and I were in Egypt just a few months ago, we visited the uh, tomb of Hatshepsut in the temple, uh, the, the, the uh, temple of the kings, in the Valley of the Kings, and, and you saw a statue of her. And what was very interesting of her, uh, of her statue was that she had cow's ears. And you thought, well, why would you put a statue up of a queen with cow's ears? Could you imagine if somebody did that with our late monarch, with Queen Elizabeth? We would be aghast. We would be horrified. We'd say, well, well you know, what a, what a stupid thing to do. Why would you depict a, a queen or a king with, with cow's ears? And the reason that is so is because Hatshepsut was identified with the goddess Hathor. And Hathor, again, was a, a cow god. In fact, at the very same site, there is a, a, there's a, a relief on one of the walls of the temple that has a, an image of a cow, and you see the Egyptian hierarchy that are drinking directly from her udders. In other words, the cow was seen to be the giver of life. The cow was a god, represented a god that was fertile and life-giving. And Pharaoh would certainly have perceived from these dreams that he was getting a message from the gods. The fact that cows came up out of the Nile River and delivered some kind of dream onto him, he thought there's a meaning to this. 
And so the first thing next morning, he gathers together all the magicians of Egypt. Now, if you're a young person here today and you're saying, well, that's interesting, there were magicians in Egypt. You know, let's understand these were not modern entertainers. There weren't guys with uh, glittery waistcoats who were pulling rabbits from hats. These were the best minds that Egypt had to offer. They were the wisest, best educated men of Pharaoh's kingdom. And they would, as part of their schooling, have gone through courses on interpreting dreams. And so they came in, they listened to Pharaoh's account of his dreams. And for the life of them, they were stumped. What do you say to that? What does that mean? However, as Pharaoh relayed his dreams to these magicians, standing over to his side, quietly in a corner, listening in, was the chief butler. And observing all that was going on around him, he thought that this scene was vaguely reminiscent of something from his past. You ever been there? You know, you suddenly you think to yourself, this reminds me of something. You know, I don't know what it is. It just reminds me of something. And then it came to him. Joseph! I forgot to, I forgot to mention Joseph! And it comes to him. And so he steps forward and he reminds the king of his imprisonment. And he tells the king how he too had a dream. And he speaks about this young Hebrew who he was incarcerated with, who had the ability to interpret dreams. And immediately, Joseph is cleaned up and shaven. He's brought from the prison, from the prison into the presence of Pharaoh. And there he stood, an impoverished young Hebrew in the presence of the most powerful man on earth at that time. Now let me say to you, only the providence of God can work a thing like that out. Only the sovereignty of God can take a believer out from the prison and place him in the palace in one swift maneuver. Now I'm, I'm going to sound like a broken record today, but if you get nothing else from the life of Joseph, get this, God is in control. That's the thing I want you to get. When things go bad in your life, God is in control. When things take a downturn, God is in control. Actually, when things take an upturn, God is in control. Whether you're having a, a blessed day or you're having a blasted day, whether you're having a day that causes you to praise or a day that you are tempted to curse, nonetheless, God is still in control. Now notice Joseph's, Joseph's plan. Verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon, and he shaved himself, and changed his raiment, his clothes, and came in unto Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I have dreamed a dream, and there is none that can interpret it. And I have heard say of thee that thou canst understand a dream to interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It's not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Now let's stop there for a moment. Because essentially what happens here is that Pharaoh summarizes his predicament. He says, I've dreamed a dream. No one can interpret it. I understand you can decipher dreams. I've been told that. Now, here was Joseph's golden opportunity. You know, here was the moment when he could bring up the fact that he had been mistreated, 
that he had been dealt with unjustly, that, that, that he had been unfairly imprisoned. Here was his chance to complain about the food that he had had to eat these many years, about the fact that he hardly saw daylight from one day to the next. And yet, as you read this passage, there's not one accusation of Potiphar, no criticism even of the butler who forgot him, nothing. You see, here's the thing. Joseph is holding on to his dream. He's confident in the word of God. And he's assured, even when life took a downturn, he's assured that God is in control. Nor does he take this moment to blow his own trumpet. Joseph said, uh, the Pharaoh says, I understand, I've heard say of thee that thou canst understand a dream to interpret it. He doesn't say, well, well, actually now you've come to the right man. It's, a good, it's, a, it's interesting you should bring that up, Pharaoh, because I'm the dream expert around here. Ask, ask the butler again. Have him tell you the story again. Can you see somebody doing that? Can you see yourself doing that? You know, he says, you know, he can say, well, I was the one. You know, I was the one. The butler, the poor butler, he didn't know what was going on. But listen, I filled him in. And sure enough, it all came true exactly, exactly like I said it was. Now tell me what's on your mind and, and I'll sort it out for you. That's not what he says. You know, the book of Proverbs says this, most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. You see, Joseph wasn't any man. He was God's man. He was concerned only that God got the glory. Look what he says in verse 16. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Now, I want you to stop and think about the courage that it took to make this confession before Pharaoh. I mean, Joseph was in a very precarious Situation. He's in a delicate position here. I mean, if this Pharaoh takes a dislike to him, guess what? He's not only going back to prison, but he might even lose his life. I mean, this Pharaoh holds life and death in his hands, politically speaking. He's the man. He's number one in the world. Joseph is in a very dangerous position. It would have been maybe wise we'd have said, well, maybe don't say anything just yet about God. Don't, don't challenge his theology. Uh, don't challenge his belief system. If you just keep stumb right now, Joseph, and just get on with interpreting the dream, things will work out for you. But that's not Joseph. First thing he says to Joseph, says to Pharaoh is, it's not in me. I don't have that gift. I don't have that ability. This is not something that comes naturally to me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. You know, you think about who Pharaoh was. Pharaoh was the embodiment of the ancient god Ra, the sun god. He wasn't just a political figure. He was a religious figure as well. He embodied the state religion. And guess what? The God of the Hebrews didn't fit into their theology. The God of Canaan land wasn't someone that was of interest to him. He had no thought, no concern whatsoever for the gods of other peoples. But Joseph wants him to know that any ability he has is God-given, and that apart from the Lord, he is nothing. 
Four times in all, in this conversation, Joseph tells Pharaoh that it was God who was going to give him the answer. That if God was to, if he was to have an interpretation, it would be God's doing. Look at verse 25. He says this, God hath showed Pharaoh what he's about to do. Verse 28, he says to him, what God is about to do, he showeth unto Pharaoh. Verse 32, he says, it's because this thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Do you see what he says? God, God, God. It's all about God. Not about me. You know, sometimes we're tempted to take the Lord's glory, aren't we? Sometimes we're tempted to pat ourselves on the back, blow our own trumpets a little bit. Not acknowledge that our giftings come from the Lord. And I wonder, is it not the case that we should be as focal in magnifying God's grace to us as Joseph was? That we should speak up as Joseph did. That we should take the opportunity as Joseph did to share Christ. To say, look, anything I am, I am by the grace of God. Well, by the grace of God, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. And it's one of those good news, bad news kind of situations, you know, where somebody tells you the good news and then they tell you the bad news. And the good news is that there's going to be seven years of plenty. There's going to be a boom in the economy, that things are going to go well. There's going to be bumper harvests year on year for seven years. But the bad news is that those seven years will be followed by seven years of famine. You see, God had a message for Pharaoh concerning the growing economy of Egypt. He said there's going to be a a global recession. There's going to be a boom and then there's going to be a bust. Have you ever noticed that about the economy? It's always boom and bust, isn't it? Even in our own society, it's boom and bust. There's years of plenty and then there's years of austerity. And that's what Egypt was facing. But you know, God rarely tells you the problem without tendering you the solution. And so Joseph not only tells Pharaoh what's going to happen, but he tells him what he needs to do about it. Look in verse 33. He says, Now therefore let Pharaoh look out a man discreet and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land and take up the fifth part of the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that come and lay up corn under the hand of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Do you know what? That was a brilliant piece of economical advice. Here's what he said to him. He says, when things are good, here's what you should do. You should tuck some away for a rainy day. He says, when we're having seven years of plenty, take 20% and store it up. Store it up year on year, and then we'll have something to live on during the bad years. Can I say to you, I think this is one of the great failings of modern government. That very often when we're experiencing boom years, the government is spending, spending, spending. And then when you have the bust years, the government is reining it in and reining it in and reining it in. Wouldn't it be better if government said to themselves, listen, during the boom years, we'll put some aside. And during the bust years, we'll have money to continue on with services. That was Joseph's advice. It was good economics. 
And as a consequence, we find then that Joseph received promotion. Look at his promotion in verse 37. And the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of, of, of his servants, all his servants. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this is, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God has showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. Now Joseph's advice under inspiration was that Pharaoh should look out a man, discreet and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. You know what I love about this? It never occurred to Joseph once he was that man. Never crossed his mind he was the man. You know what happens sometimes in churches when people are, are looking at, at, at maybe office bearers and, and you're looking at maybe electing people to an office? Some people get it in their head, I'm the man. Can I suggest to you, if you get it in your head that you're the man, you're probably not the man. Honestly, you're probably not the man. You know, there's days, honest, I wake up, there's days I think to myself, how did, how did I even become a pastor? You probably think that every Sunday. But I say, how did I even become a pastor? I didn't know why the Lord would do that. Why would the Lord even call me? Honestly. I don't get up thinking, I'm the man. Don't, it never crosses my mind. Never did cross my mind. Sometimes I think I'm, I'm here by some kind of quirk, some kind of mistake. Something went wrong somewhere along the line. Look, Joseph wasn't promoting himself. He didn't offer his services. He didn't come along and say, look, you know, I'm the, I'm the dream expert. I'm the guy who's explained it all to you. I've given you the policy. Why don't you hire me? I, I'll be the one to take this job. You see, he knew that self-promotion was no promotion. But Pharaoh saw what others before him had seen in Joseph, that there was something different about this man that God was with him. That's what he says in verse 38. Can we find such a one as this is, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? He says in the next verse, God hath showed thee all this. And so he pronounces him as grand vizier of Egypt, second only to the king. Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled only in the throne will I be greater than thou. Now, there's a person that doesn't get mentioned in this text, but I often wonder what he thought of this moment in time. Do you ever consider what it was like when Potiphar heard this news? <laughs> Can you imagine what it was like in Potiphar's house when he came home from work that day? Came in to his darling wife, who was lolling around as usual, and she says, well, dear, how was your day at the office? And he says, well, let me explain to you my day at the office, dear. Do you remember the fellow that you accused of raping you? Oh, yes, he's a, he was a baden. Well, the baden is only prime minister. He's only my boss. You may start packing your bags. We're going to get fired. I don't know whether Joseph fired Potiphar. I doubt that he did. But you can imagine him thinking that way. 
thinking to himself, what a terrible day this is. And though scripture doesn't specify it, it's quite likely that these two got their comeuppance for all that they inflicted upon Joseph. Now the position of Grand Vizier equates exactly with that of our modern prime ministers, except his power was derived directly from the king and not by the vote of the people. He would have been the chief officer of the state. He would have been responsible for carrying out all administrative functions of the kingdom except in the matters concerning religion. It was his job to appoint provincial governors who had to report to him in person every three years or three times a year. There was district inspectors uh, who would report to him. Anything to do with provincial boundaries, anything to do with land allocation, anything to do with tax arrears or internal security were his responsibility. Foreign dignitaries, when they came into Egypt, didn't get to meet Pharaoh. They were ushered into Joseph's office. When he went on tour, the local officials would greet him by lying prostrate before him uh, as he as he passed by paying homage to him. He was surrounded by scribes who noted his every word. Everything he said would have been written down and would have been kept on record and would have served in the role of governance. He was diligently recorded in all of his decisions. He traveled in style. He was surrounded by bodyguards. You know, there were men there who would have been clearing the way for him. Much like what happened in Belfast this week. When the President of the United States came, they shut the whole city down. Our, our visitors who were here on Wednesday evening were ministering in Bangor on Tuesday night. And they said that they had to bypass the whole city uh, to get around the, the blockages of central Belfast because President Biden was coming in and because there was a cavalcade of cars uh, coming down from the airport, the, the motorway was shut, the city centre was shut and they had to make this long route around to get all the way around the city and, and head over toward uh, Moira direction. But get this, though the President of America came in his fancy aircraft, and he was accompanied by 35 rather large gas-guzzling cars. Joseph would have ridden around Egypt on a chariot carved out of gold. You know what? That's what I call style. <laughs> that is style. I mean, he's, he, this guy has landed. Okay, uh, his home would have been a man- mansion on the wealthy suburbs of the city. You know, his life was one of great affluence, and he had almost total power. In fact, did you know that they have uncovered Joseph's home? Do you realize that it has been found by archaeologists? They never tell you this stuff. But they have found a home that they believe to be Joseph's. They have found this wonderful uh, big home that sat on the outside uh, on the edge of town and that uh, had, a, had a, uh, right beside it a mausoleum that inside that mausoleum they got in. There's a statue uh, of a man who's clearly of uh, Semitic origin, uh, a shepherd. And on his shoulders, each of his shoulders, they've, they've worked out that there is a multicolored uh, robe, the multicolored garment indicating the, the garment that he would have worn as a young man coming into Egypt and in the grounds of that particular house there are graves, 12 graves which they believe belong to his brothers and his sister interesting these were changed days for Joseph 
But friends, understand this, and this is all I want you to get this morning. All of this was because God prepared him for it. He wasn't brought from the farm to the palace wearing the robes of Hebrew nobility. He was brought from prison where he had been in more ways than one, the king's prisoner. In Potiphar's house, he had learned to be a steward of a lot. In prison, he learned how to be a steward over little. Now he would rule over Egypt during seven years of plenty, and then he would rule over Egypt during seven years of famine. God is in control. I'm going to say it again. God is in control, and God always knows what he's doing. I want you to understand, especially this morning, if you're among those who are weighed down by circumstance right now, that God has it under control. I want you to know if your heart is heavy when you get up in the morning, that God has it under control. I want you to know if you're always on the edge of tears, that God has it under control. I want you to know that he can change your lot in a moment, that he can move you from the prison to the palace, but he won't do it until you graduate. He won't do it until you grow. He won't do it until you're ready to acknowledge that he is Lord. It's no good complaining or becoming bitter or becoming angry or feeling sad. Complaint and bitterness and sadness of spirit will get you nowhere. No, in these dreary, dark, dungeon days of life, when it looks like nothing will ever change for you, You need to lay hold of the promises of Almighty God. You know, there's a Christian university in America that has estimated that there are 7,487 promises in the Bible made by God to men. Joseph had just one promise. That's all he had. One promise. You know, we can go back and we can flick through our Bibles and we can read 7,487 promises. We can refresh our minds about the things that God has said. We can go back and revise and review. We can go back and, and say, oh yeah, I forgot that the Lord... But Joseph, he didn't have a Bible. He was relying on a distant memory. And all he had was one promise from God. And yet through his darkest days, this man remained true to God's word. He believed that God would be true to him. You see, Joseph never lost confidence in the word of God. Not in God's person. Not in God's presence. Not in God's plan. And certainly not in God's promises. You know, when everything in our lives is placed on hold, understand God is doing it for a purpose. You know, if you're like me, being put on hold is a very negative experience. Do you ever phone somebody and they put you on hold? You know, you phone the, the mobile phone companies are the worst for it, aren't they? Or if you phone one of them satellite TV, Sky, or something like that, you phone them up, you've got a query, or you want to close your account, or something like that, and they'll say, all our operators are busy right now. But if you'll just hold the line, 
we'll get back to you as soon as we can. The waiting time is only four days and 20, 23 hours. But you can listen to this awful tune for that period of time, which will even depress your spirit more than it already has. And so you sit there and sit there and sit there and sit there. And you're tempted just to hang up, aren't you? You're tempted just to hang it up and say, I'll phone back when nobody else is calling. But if you phone back later on, guess what? You get the same message. And they put you on hold. And it's, it's never fun. But God doesn't put you on hold just because he's wanting to bother you or because he's too busy with somebody else. He's putting you in a hole because he has a purpose and because his timing is perfect. And every promise of scripture, every one of those 7,487 promises cry out to us, believe me, accept me, hold on to me. When we're dwelling under the dark clouds of life, those promises must become our mainstay. They cry out, wait on the Lord, walk with the Lord. I'll be, it'll be worth it in the end. You see, you and I may not believe that right now. You may not believe that today looking at your present situation. And it may seem that the promises of God are faking to you, that they're empty and futile. But I want you to understand that God always holds true to his word and your circumstances, no matter how dark or dreary, no matter how depressing or discouraging, no matter how difficult, can change in a moment. It can change in a moment. And don't ever forget it. One moment, Joseph was sitting in prison, feeling like nothing's ever going to change for me. And the next moment, he was standing in the palace, being fitted out for new robes, and handed the keys to a golden chariot. Who knows what the Lord has in store for us? But we must hold faithful to his promises. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts uh, this morning. Let's